0: I don't know a soul who's not been battered I don't have a friend who feels at ease I don't know a dream that's not been shattered Or driven to its knees Oh, but it's alright, it's alright but well, we lived so well so long. Still when I think of the road we're traveling on, I wonder what's gone wrong. I can't help it, I wonder what's gone wrong.
1: We made it through the um uh, George Herbert Walker Bush presidency. Um, which lands us in 1992 um, or 1993. And during the 1990s, right, we see this attempt um, within the Republican Party to push back against some of the tendencies we've seen in the 80s. Um, The Newt Gingrich movement for whatever one might want to say about it um was clearly an attempt to um secularize the republican party's image um eh, although gingrich gingrich's de facto leadership of the republican party between 1994 and 2001 um We see the, um, uh, we see social issues pushed to the background, we see the power, uh, we don't see the big family values resolutions at the conventions that we'd seen um, in the 80s, uh, in 80, 84 and 88, Um, we see a pretty dramatic uh, demobilization of um, this incipient coalition that uh, wielded such tremendous power uh, immediately prior. Um, Instead, uh, the Gingrich period in the Republican party, and we should include in that the influence that Gingrich and the people around him exerted to hand the nomination to Bob Dole in 1996, Um, we should see these efforts as an attempt by the Republican Party to leash this phenomenon that had gotten out of the control of the people who thought they were running the party. Uh, Gingrich, in addition, of course, was engaged in a highly successful populist campaign, um, basically in favor of leaning into austerity. And um, this, uh, the problem is that leaning into austerity was essentially everybody's agenda in the 1990s. Uh, if, if you were the main party or the main opposition party in any country anywhere, your platform was to lean into austerity and try to brand it as your own. Um, And of course what this produced was the thing you don't want if you're not the incumbent, which is low contrast politics. No matter how far to the right in favor of austerity Gingrich went, um, Bill Clinton was always prepared to match him and was in fact more effective in appropriating the rhetoric of austerity than Gingrich himself was. And so the popularity of the austerity programs in America in the 90s kept the Republicans in control of the House and kept the Democrats in control of the presidency. And so we see in 1996, and I know that we often think of Newt Gingrich as an extremist, as a slash and burn guy. And with respect to the reach of the state, the ability of the state to actually materially help people. Newt Gingrich is a radical. But even if we look at his failed presidential bid in 2012, what hill did he die on? He died on a hill, not of this world. He died on the moon. Um, The collapse in Gingrich's poll numbers in his comeback attempt in 2012 Uh, of course, um, had to do with his promise of a moon base um, before the Florida primary, which annihilated Gingrich. So in many ways, although Gingrich believed in a radically shrunken state um, in terms of social welfare, um, he was of a piece with the secularist Republican tradition. And... In many ways, the accretion of political capital around Gingrich constituted the first real obstacle that um, the uh, the evangelical um, block uh, faced in a serious way. Uh, Gingrich was happy, of course, to defund abortion in every piece of legislation he proposed, but that's because he didn't want anyone's healthcare funded in any way at all. Uh, especially singling out abortion simply improved his chances of getting a particular procedure defunded. And we see um, with Gingrich, there was, uh, there's no attempt, right? There was this belief on, on the part of Republicans following the 92 election that um, Ross Perot had largely attracted a a populist secularist vote away from them. Um, There was this sense of Clinton as the supreme secularist. And so there was this moment of really questioning um, whether evangelicals could deliver for the party um, in this new environment, in this post-Soviet environment, because after all, the Christianization of America's image and its discourses was primarily an exigency of the Cold War, a foreign policy imperative that had to shake down domestically in the same way that civil rights were a foreign policy imperative that had to shake down domestically in order to achieve the foreign policy objective. Now, what's interesting here is... um, that uh, of course, one of the reasons there is this way in which America's primary system um, produces kinds of authority that um, uh, we might associate with a caliph or a, um, or a Basilius or a Caesar or a czar or what have you, um, is of course the fact that you can't actually win a convention majority on the issues, right? This is what I tell every entryist who talks to me about taking out a membership in any federal party. I go, when's the leadership race and who are we backing? Because there is simply no other way to, you can't actually turn people out to oppose abortion at the Republican National Convention, unless um, unless you select delegates based on an anti-abortion presidential candidate. You're not going to get a bunch of uh, unaffiliated delegates sent to a party convention in the American primary system as it exists today. And so it's in this context that we have to look at Karl Rove and the George W. Bush machine. Now, one of the preoccupations of the eldest of the uh, Bush heirs um, was to be seen in contradistinction to his father, George W. Bush, um, very different from Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush is the one seeking parental approval through his participation in national politics, whereas George the second. Um, is uh, very much engaged in national politics as a means of uh, of uh, as a means of uh, distinguishing himself from his father, as we of course see in the early two thousand and seven attempted coup by his father. Uh, so. Um, uh <laughs> very nice so what was what was jeb like on the plane
2: uh, it was a flight from mexico to atlanta, mexico city to atlanta and he was he flew in first class he brought a big thick novel like an 800 page you know pulp novel stuffed it in the seat pocket and then watched a movie the entire time he watched the three billboards outside missouri movie and that was
1: it well, that's, yeah, you see, that's the kind of thing his dad would have done. You know, bring the book, bring the book for show, right? That's not That's not what his older brother would have done. His older brother might've provoked people by bringing a coloring book just for the hell of it. Uh, so we also have this family dynamic, right? So we have this project, this project of a united fundamentalism for American hegemony and oil. That was his father's project. And so we we know, and so George W. Bush, um, with little parental support uh, entered the, uh, the primaries in 1999. And we know the story, he was up against John McCain. And this was probably the only clear contest in the history of the Republican party between the secularists and the evangelicals. Probably the one vote we can say was clearly just these two groups facing off. And in that context, And John McCain was extraordinarily successful, except of course, that McCain's convention delegates came overwhelmingly from independent voters voting in Republican primaries. Once you eliminate statistically, the independent votes for McCain in the 2000 primaries, you don't see a divided party with, um, uh, with a strong secularist wing. What you see is a party thoroughly captured by evangelical voters, uh, fundamentalists, et cetera, that, um, um, and concern on the part of unaffiliated voters uh, about that happening to America. Uh, In many ways, I would argue that um, many of the independents who voted, the independents who voted for McCain in 2000 are not the independents who voted for McCain in 2008. Uh, These are people with very different interests. And uh, Karl Rove, um, as George W. Bush's guy, as his brilliant strategist who had won him the governorship of the great state of Texas, she does, of course, remind me of that one lovely George W. Bush interview during the primaries where the interviewer says to him, so uh, I noticed, though, that you haven't got very many endorsements from senators or even other governors. And uh, Bush says, well, that's not, uh, that's not entirely true. I have, my, uh, I have the endorsement of my brother Jeb, the governor of the great state of Texas, no, you're the governor of the great state of Texas. Why, yes, I am the governor of the great state of Texas. So that's um, uh, uh, why, yes, I am. So this, uh, uh, the, so what's interesting, right? Is Carl Rove appears not just to have understood how to motivate evangelical voters But Rove is one of these curious hatchet men who believes that he may be going to hell personally to serve God. Um, One of the reasons that Karl Rove was so effective, I don't think anybody could be as effective as Rove was at getting inside the minds of evangelical voters who might be discouraged after eight years of a secularist and no ability to make policy, pardon me, doctrine at Republican conventions. But uh, Rove had a great talent. Um, And I think fundamentally, um, the two great insights, of course, the first great insight of Karl Rove is well known, which is that anytime you have an electoral system with significant turnout variability, you have two paths to victory, not one. Uh, One path to victory is convince as many people as possible. And the other path to victory is mobilize as many convinced people as possible. And that second path to victory, of course, um, had not, people hadn't really done the math for that. People had assumed that if you wanted to gain more votes on election day, You should get more people to agree with you, not fewer. Uh, Now, of course, the trick is is to find a way to mobilize your people while demobilizing the other people because that's part of your, if we're counting votes at the end, not support, uh, but if we're counting the votes that show up, how do we demobilize people? I think in this way, Karl Rove is really an under-recognized political strategist because it wasn't just that George W. Bush could say things that made you angry. It was his capacity to say things that made you want to lie down. It was the capacity to say things that, uh, that instill in his adversaries a sense of futility and hopelessness. For this reason, Right. We think many people say it's, you know, Dan Quayle brought the first Bush president down. So wouldn't it be delicious to use Dan Quayle's communication strategy to become the president to, in fact, understate your qualifications, intelligence and education to make your adversaries who think those things are important and will matter. bow out, feel that, that that process, that, so there's a way in which George W. Bush hams up um, his intellectual and academic mediocrity, uh, because it's an effective demobilization strategy. Um, but again, it's also of a piece with the anti-intellectual tradition of America that he is banking on. That sola scriptura tradition handed down from the great reformers that you should only need to read one book in your life. That the meanings of the things on the pages in the book are all obvious. That there's nothing else you need to know. And uh, that profound resonance is there. The last and most important Rovian insight that I still have never seen done in Canada, and I believe if somebody actually had the nerve to try it, it would have devastating effects, which is do not attack your opponent's weaknesses, only attack their strengths. We see this especially in 2004. So John Kerry became a name we knew because he was a young man who ran through live machine gun fire for 100 meters to the machine gun nest and beat the man in the nest to death with his hands. So naturally the only sensible thing to do is to say that John Kerry is a coward. That's all you hit all the time. He's unmanly, he's a coward, his wife runs everything. He's a coward, he's unmanly. And stunningly that that works. Um, I'm sure that the meetings about that strategy were a site of frenzied debate, because like Donald Trump, it's one of these things we, the smart people, would never have guessed would work. We would have thought, "Don't, don't draw attention to his military record. That's crazy. Don't form this swift boat veterans for truth as like your big advertising front. That's insane. You're just drawing attention to this man's curtain. No, no, Carl Rove really had something there. So the importance of, so what, the reason I talked about Rove is that had the Republican party not achieved power in two thousand. It is doubtful that this process of desecularization would have continued. It is highly doubtful because the evangelicals would have had to find something else to think with, something else to make agreements with each other through. The Republican National Convention is only an effective way of thinking together and making doctrine together. if it produces a presidency. If it doesn't produce a presidency, you don't know what to do about the new doctrine you created because the doctrine you created got voted down. The doctrine you created has not become part of the state. Uh, and so that was a very difficult election without the genius of Karl Rove in managing to elect George W. Bush. Um, America likely would have gone on a different path. And then, of course, there's no way to recover 9-11, right? I really don't care what temperature metal melts at. I really like the onion inter, the um, the onion coverage of the debate between the 9-11 truther and the Al-Qaeda guy, where um, it's like, well, you see, you see that, 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 that beam couldn't have melted because because look at the temperature at which uh, this metal melts. And then the al just says, let me repeat, we crashed a plane into the building. And then, you know, it's like, oh yeah, there's, there's no way this could have happened without the U.S. government going. I find this very insulting as a Muslim person, this belief that we could not kill large numbers of you without assistance from your government. Um, I, uh, that's sort of where I tend to go. Um, were they deliberately asleep at the switch or just constitutionally asleep at the switch? Who's to say? But God knows it's not exactly like it's a really short list of people who would want to blow up the World Trade Center if they could. Uh, you know, really, you know, why why hadn't the Bolivians already done it? Um, so, nevertheless, what, um, what 9-11 permitted was the last ingredient we needed. That the first Bush president and Reagan had successfully assembled a fundamentalist Christian coalition in opposition to communism. The redeployment of that coalition in opposition to Islam, that was tricky given the incredible number of personal and business le- links in the elites of those of the original coalition, right? All kinds of people you've been doing business with, all your friends now, you're now supposed to be on opposite sides of this fake war? Um, That, of course, is where we see uh, the repudiation of the first Bush presidency, the evisceration of the global coalition that uh, the senior Bush had assembled in favor of a parochial coalition they would still do business with the other guys still you know make sure they got out of the country in time and things like that but fundamentally you really can't be fat at home and thin at work um they're the the ability of fundamentalist oil elites to collaborate across religious, uh, across um, the Christian Muslim divide has absolutely been undermined by uh, Bush's creation of this new smaller coalition. Uh, But what that coalition could do was what happened in 2004. the coalition could decide to ban gay marriage and gay marriage was the new issue that could be added to this growing pile of doctrine. And of course, um, this and in fact, uh, in 04, of course, Karl Rove worked with state Republican parties to get as many anti-gay marriage and anti-abortion ballot initiatives on the ballot uh, so as to drive turnout because the sense on the part of the base was that um, george w bush was not religiously intolerant enough and their going to the polls uh, meant that uh, the pie had to be sweetened um and so we see um uh this very um uh, we see this whole thing with the religious rhetoric there. And followed, not long after, by, and this is just before Glenn Beck puts out the Thousand Year Leap, uh, of course there is, uh, Gordon B Hinckley's mobilization of the Mormon Church behind Proposition 8 in California, Seeing the opposition to gay marriage and the new revelation that's been received, the proclamation on the nature of the family um, as being another way of fusing um, the LDS with this larger fundamentalist world. And with Proposition 8 in California, it's the first time the LDS present themselves as the leaders of... That um, of that coalition that um, many people, of course, criticize the uh, Mormon church, saying that uh, Proposition 8 could have passed with more votes if um, it hadn't been so obviously a Mormon effort. But uh, uh, yeah. So yeah, proclamation on the family is like, there's your beginning. And then it allows them to take leadership with, uh, with Prop 8. Now, of course, the main reason that Prop 8 won was because our side um, was extra stupid and they kept comparing uh, the prohibition of gay marriage to the prohibition of interracial marriage which was a dumb thing to do when it's 2008 and black women have the highest rate of turnout of any uh, demographic group in America. So it's 93% of black women who show up to vote in 2008 for Barack Obama. And um, of course, uh, they are the group that, is, that has the strongest opposition to interracial marriage. So, choosing a message to make all these black women who've shown up to vote for Obama vote in favor of a gay marriage ban was, um, well, that was some, uh, that was, a, that was a, a, a scoring on the own net situation, I would say. In any case, um, One of the things that then becomes a feature, of course, following the 2008 election, the 2008 election is blamed in Republican circles on um, the sidelining of Sarah Palin by liberal secularist Democrat, John McCain. Uh, and, um, And suddenly we're off to the races. And we see beginning with the lead up to the 2012 primaries, um, not just an increasing amount of doctrine making by primary candidates, uh, like uh, Michelle Bachman. Uh, I do enjoy uh, Bill Maher's characterization of Michelle and Marcus Bachman, who we continue to refer to as the indoor Palins uh but uh this um uh what we see in this lead up to um to 2012 is the degree to which um the evangelical and mormon worlds are converging the first person in the race to proclaim their support for the 5000 year leap and the work of Cleon Scousum is not the mormon It's Rick Perry. Mitt Romney has to be pressured into saying that he is a reader of Cleon Skousen and agrees with the 5,000-year leap. Uh, The the embrace of um, this unique Mormon-created formulation of the meaning of the Holy Empire Um, is, uh, is throughout the, the Republican race. When um, uh, Romney, of course, also um, consistently dog whistles the British-Israelite theory uh, in the campaign with this invocation of the Anglo-Saxon race, Anglo-Saxonism, and references to Skousen. So once, once it's introduced, once it's been introduced, and they can't say it's the Mormon putting this out there. Um, but the thing is, other than Alexander Zacek of Salon Magazine, no one covers the fact that these supposedly evangelical ideas are Scousins. So we see in during the Obama presidency we see the Republican convention gaining a greater ability to make doctrine, even when they're not in power. Uh, We see that um, if you can get all the candidates for nomination to have a consensus about something like Skousen or whatever, none of them has to become the Caliph for this system to keep accreting doctrine, for America to keep making new hadiths. and um, But of course, the punchline to all this is the Trump presidency, because the Trump's relationship, Trump's relationship to the evangelicals is a fascinating one. It is like that of an Ottoman Caliph, um, Like like that of a Byzantine emperor in that this person is, on the one hand, uh, the person is ontologically distinct from other human beings. That's what it means when you are equal to the apostles and vicegerent of God on earth. It means that when you commit adultery, it is not adultery. When you commit incest, it is not incest when that there is a special set of rules and there's an acknowledgement of this special set of rules, that in fact, um, we should not expect our caliph or our emperor to be a, thank you, a faithful person. In fact, the distance between them and public adherence to the faith actually is evidence that they are the emperor or the caliph right? It's, it's that's, that gulf, that ontological gulf that shows that you cannot be classed with other people and that everything you do is by virtue of you doing it a holy action. So we don't just have the idea of the mulligan, and I love the idea of the mulligan becoming like a religious term, that it means something like, it's an indulgence, right? That's what you're doing. You're, you're buying somebody out of purgatory for a sin, except that it's a term from Gulf, um, that is in turn, uh, based on, uh, 19th century, um, anti-Irish Catholic racism. Uh, so, uh, it's wonderful to have Franklin Graham bestowing a mulligan upon the emperor, but, what you increasingly see is that everything wrong with the emperor is a sign of his divine election. The fact he lost the popular vote proves that God installed him. The fact that he won the popular vote also proves that God installed him. And of course, the same people are making the same arguments at the same time. Um, Similarly, the record of illegality is proof that God has chosen him. The record of infidelity is proof that God has chosen him. And we see the same rhetoric around Charlemagne, around the early Byzantine emperors, we and around the Ottoman emperors. We don't see an effort to propagandize and create the false image of a pious man. We see this thing that is characteristic of orthodox systems that we don't like in the Catholic descended parts of Christianity. Catholicism and its descendants, including all of Protestantism, like to emphasize the goodness of God when they try to solve the problem of evil. Whereas Orthodox approaches, which are really, Orthodox approaches, of course, are all being created in the court of Constantine and his successors, emphasize the power of God, not the goodness of God, when they try to solve the problem of evil. Because it's like, well, who are you to say what's good or evil? God is all-powerful. He's done this, period. That the power is, in fact, the evidence of the divine mission. And um, so we see a propaganda built around Trump showing that no matter what he does, it causes God's will to be enacted that he is an appendage effectively of God himself and uh, that his arbitrariness simply redounds to the power and mystery of the Godhead. So now what's curious in all this is that there is another thing going on here this split. And Donald Trump's decision, whether it was his decision, it's hard to say. The insertion of Mike Pence into the Trump presidency uh, is very important because there's a poor, because the other thing, of course, that's going on that we don't have time for in this course is the Pornographication of the right. The way in which that this is the rise of the porno right. Um, and, uh, you know, I got to see that firsthand, right? I really, I got a sense. Trump was so much like um, my, uh, the, uh, the father of an ex of mine who was a tea party activist, who was, you know, had was on the Bush's personal donors circle, who grew up in the house next door to the Kennedy's on Chappaquiddick, all that stuff. Um, We see not, uh, there isn't just this, uh, that what we see is this debate about the boundaries of masculinity. And there are some, people on the right. And we really saw that with the drop in the Republican vote in Utah. Um, Mormon masculinity is still very much a 19th century masculinity of self-control. That um, um, forms of hyper-masculinity, cheating, incest, that sort of thing, are a sign of masculinity that is not under control. And... There is this other masculinity embodied in uh, David Gostenhofer or Donald Trump, where you know you shout, you know, your rape fantasies about your daughter at the dining room table and pound your fist. Um, that that's uh, that that's the shape that a whole bunch of America's patriarchy is taking on, and the relationship of that group to Christianity and to this Holy Empire project is tenuous. It's tenuous because you're looking at unrestrained forms of hyper-masculinity trying to cohabit with the opposite kind, with Mike Pence going like, you know, you know, this guy's a straight shooter. This guy has been not sucking a dick every year for like 50 straight years, even though that would really, the you can tell that's the next thing he wants to do but he's, you know, holding it together for God. Um, You need that kind of extreme restraint to counterbalance, I would say, the one out-of-control variable. Because the thing is that, unlike Charlemagne or a Byzantine emperor, Trump is representative of a whole class of men in his culture, this emergent pornographic patriarch. And whether that can live within the Holy Empire system, I don't think is a settled question. There may be a portion of the coalition that will fall off and deny it its majority and the system will back up. It's pretty hard to say. But with the advent of the Trump presidency, we then, we then have this problem of the people who are, not even, who are not evangelicals, who are nevertheless loyal. And here again, we see this other force to create orthodoxy that is different, right? The people who are held in place in that coalition because of QAnon are not making their orthodoxy at Republican conventions. They have to disavow their orthodoxy at Republican conventions. The sites of the making of that orthodoxy are very different. Although it's highly democratic, it's also outside the circle. So one of the things I, I want to do here in closing up is I don't want to suggest an inevitability here that this, that America is on this califal or imperial track, Um where Republican conventions make doctrine, the voter rolls shrink, it becomes a a one-party state, et cetera. Um, There are lots of different ways this could go. But what I, I do want to emphasize is that there's a lot of predictive power in using the Holy Empire model. For instance, the pivot from communism to Islam as the enemy very it's funny because um in the rhetoric of the byzantine empire we see the same pivot with the collapse of the persian empire and the selection of islam as the enemy um the need if you are viceroy of god on earth you're running god's armies that's your job and god's armies need something to fight and um i think the one area uh the trump presidency failed to deliver on was in adequately describing um was in continuing to describe the muslim world as the thing it was fighting now final note on uh, that whole fighting muslims thing i think as i mentioned in the uh ethiopia lecture at the time i will reiterate one of the countries in which the second Bush president is the most beloved was Ethiopia. They, uh, he finally gave them all of those tanks to send against the Muslims that they'd been asking for from the West since the 13th century. Um, so a last feature is this question of who people expect America to be, who do they want? Um, the uh, somewhat battered uh, declining global hegemon to look like. And um, that's an important question because we have to remember that the way that this movement went from being a fascinating, but peripheral and parochial movement into being a Uh, one of the most powerful movements nationally in the history of the country was because of foreign policy choices made during the Eisenhower presidency uh, and not um, from below. That um, one of the things about empire is uh, is that um, the imperatives from above really do structure things below as much or more as things from below restructure the world above. Okay, that's it for um, that's it for me. That's it for the class. How are folks doing? Last comments, questions?
3: Um. Yeah, I. You know that you you talk about the relationship with evangelicals and Trump. And, um, it brought back to mind what I was talking about the other day, as far as, you know, religion being a grift and, and you were like, no, 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 no. And, and I, there was something I want to follow up with. So a, a while back, I, I sent you a link to a book, um, why God won't go away. And, uh, what it, it, it brings up this concept of neurotheology. and, and in the beginning of the book, it, the, it talks about, uh, the study done, Using PET scans on nuns and I think uh, practitioners of some form of uh, maybe transcendental meditation, and they would put them in the PET scan, and then when they and they would do their prayers or their meditation, when they got to that point where they felt that conscious contact with you know this state, whether it be God or you know on the edge of nirvana. They would trigger a little thing and they would take a picture of their brain. And lo and behold, it was the same area of brain was lighting up. And it's this is when it lights up. And so there, there seems to be this neurophysiological thing that allows us to have this religious experience. So getting to my grift part, why I think I theorize, you know, that not everybody does this, that it actually requires this study this uh whether it be prayer and meditation or going through um ordeals like uh um indian yogis and that these things light up this part of the brain and that actually the vast majority of people never experience this but they don't want to admit it and so that's why they believe and they're being grifted because they don't actually believe They are just following so they don't feel stupid. And that's how a grift works, is that you convince someone to do what you want them to do because they don't want to feel stupid.
1: Well, I guess my okay. so one of the problems with the idea that it's a grift is that it would be the only grift that there was no written record of for thousands of years. Um, There are no memos of people going, well, obviously, this isn't true. I'm just telling those people that. And there's an insane amount of religious writing that we have. One of the, normally, if there is an intentional scheme to defraud, especially by an organization that involves a coordination of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people, you would see some written record, right? This is why, I mean, this is one of the reasons the LDS has such a shitty time, right? Because There are written records where that look like people are on the edge of like not believing and trying to pull off a con and it's really problematic and it really hurts them. But the thing is, we have so many written records from so many religions for so many centuries. It would strike me as incredible that we could not find a single written trace of a, of not just one, but thousands of conspiracies to defraud. So I would agree with you, Edward, about this experience, this numinous experience, but people have only been talking about that experience. Uh, People have only been suggesting that it's a regular experience um, for less than uh, than 200 years. Um, The idea that that numinous experience is universally available or common is a Pentecostal idea. It comes out of Los Angeles in 1901. Um, So one of the problems with this is retrojecting what religion is now post the enlightenment into societies before the enlightenment. So unbelief becomes a thing that people talk about and fight about and write papers about in the 1700s. And even if we destroyed every single record by every atheist, from 1700 up to the present, um, we would know all about atheism because there are all of these church records talking about why atheists are wrong starting in the 1700s. But there's no record in any religion, in any archeological find of people talking about why atheists are wrong um, before the Reformation. So, as, as a historian who handles evidence, um, I've I got to say, I think that you're right, that, that present day, the way Christianity works in the present day, the way everything works after the Enlightenment is fundamentally different. But the, apos- the epistemological reordering that the Enlightenment caused, it fundamentally altered our consciousness. And so right? When you see people, like all kinds of people attack churches and attack organized religion and attack religious authority before 1500. We have hundreds and hundreds of examples of it. And what those people say is, these people are wrong about what God wants. These people are misrepresenting God. God would never have said that. And so again, there's the way that there are simply, there are too many things like the Nag Hammadi Library, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, like all of these um, records that um, people did not expect, did not intend for public consumption and did not expect to stick around. And we can't find a trace of the thing that you're talking about in those records. Now, do I think that people believe self-serving things? Absolutely. Do I think people knew they were getting rich off other people's faith? Absolutely, because we see that in the historical record. We see consciousness of guilt, we see accusations of corruption. Um, you know the And so because there is so much religious dirty linen in the historical record, in the written record, I, 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 I just I can't go as far as saying, um it's grift i think that the idea of god yes there are some people who can use the idea of god to get a dopamine hit and more power to them i wish i could but you know i was a christian for years without expecting to have a personal relationship with god because i joined the religion i didn't join god and so i and so i think that that we can So I'm not saying that there isn't masses of corruption in religion historically, but what's fascinating is that um, corrupt people will sometimes worry that they'll get caught. They'll sometimes worry about God's disapproval. They'll sometimes more often think that God wants them to get rich off these other idiots. But what we don't see in the records of corrupt bishops or corrupt imams are, um, is any acknowledgement that God is a hoax. Uh, and that's, that's really striking. Um, we only start seeing acknowledgements that God is a hoax in the 20th century when we look at um, you know, L. Ron Hubbard and people like that. Um, and I find that that really that curious. I think one of the good things about the Enlightenment is it forces our consciousness to see the illusion we've been creating for ourselves. But that's why I'm so concerned about epistemology because I think when our episteme shifts, it will know, it, it is clearly not shifting into one that will maintain our ability to know this thing that it's a very particular way of knowing, linked to an economic system, linked to all these other things that have given us this ability since the 1700s to look at this thing in the way that you and I are seeing it. Now, Uh, RT and uh, Jonathan, I I noticed you had your mics off a minute ago. Um, Thoughts from either of you before? Oh, Michael, Michael, you're up.
2: Two comments. One was um, at the end of the previous episode when you talked about Bush Sr. constructing this new thing that he, this new project he's working on and the moving of the family to Texas and the, the dumbing down of his or his attempt at uh, changing his accent and trying not to look like a northeastern elite. The way you describe the setup of that whole thing really nicely describes the the coming of W. You know, W is the embodiment of everything about that shift from the northeast, refined. Skull and bonesman, world traveling, you know, part of this global elite to the front for that elite, because it's the same elite, but the front man is now the Joker rather than the king. But the Joker gets elevated to the king because they know this is how we become the new king. This is the style, which to me, as you were talking about Clinton, W is just a born again Clinton. He abuses the substances. He cheats on his wife. He does everything that a good old boy is expected to do. And then he has the cleansing moment where he becomes a born-again Christian and suddenly he can fit into this new religious narrative with all the aw shucks, down-home rancher nonsense uh, piled on top. It was, like a, it was a, a perfect setup for that. Uh, the second thing I wanted to ask was about uh, at the Republican conventions during the 90s when they were getting humiliated by Bill and the, um, the religious group were maybe feeling a little out of step and Gingrich is in there. Isn't that at the moment when they learned that the, the dogma can still be instituted at the junior level, at the state level, And so even while the big meal ticket, the White House, is there to be fought over, if you really want to get your Christian Sharia law passed, you're going to do it state by state, not through the White House. And so even when they lose and go through eight years of Obama, they're actually winning the long-term war at the state level. Does that fit with part of how the Holy Empire is maintained even if the caliph happens to take an eight-year break
1: um i don't know i mean it's clear that it's clear that i mean there's a difference between being theocratic and being a holy empire right so i think that you're right that what these tactics do allow america to be like iran right where they're a hybrid democracy. They have these courts. The courts are controlled by religious folks of a particular bent. And um, they let people vote from time to time. But there is this tightening noose of um, religious control through institutional capture um, at various political levels. I think that in terms of America being theocratic, absolutely. In terms of it... The problem is that you can be a theocratic state, but being a holy empire is this notch above that that is very hard to reach, or maybe it's below. But um, the thing is, the structure of a holy empire, at least traditionally, has been the caliph is commander-in-chief of the army. The army does God's will. Therefore, the caliph is the, hands of, is the hand of God. And um, I, and we see that. Uh, and so I think in some ways, um, it's, that, it's that strange addition that, um, where we're in uncharted territory. In some ways, actually, I think that the multiplication of religious authority at the state level drains power away from the caliph. It makes America more theocratic, it makes it more evangelical, but it actually means that you don't have to have all of this power transacted through one man's body. Uh, That that decentralization pushes America towards Iran and away from the Ottoman Empire. That, That would be my take.
2: I kind of think the state level stuff is more like a safety blanket. Like if you wind up losing the White House for four or eight years, you can just fall back to your state legislature position, continue churning along, getting things done, and then, you know, have another palace coup and get in there again.
3: Michigan is one of those states where that happened. So through the Clinton era, what you described is exactly what happened. Started at the school board and township county boards. And the next thing you knew, you have people in the Michigan militia storming the state capitol during a pandemic. Um, in that whole time leading up to Trump, you know, again, you have, you know, these Michigan militias, you have, um, you, you have like a, a really strange religious separation. Um, you know, what, oh, I remember one thing. So I grew up outside of Battle Creek where Seventh-day Adventism started. And, you know, there, there's it's spread throughout the state, but they're separate. Like you didn't know someone next to you is any of any given religion unless you went to the same school. And the separatist didn't go to public school, but they voted in the public school boards. Mm-hmm. And slowly but surely they took over. And the whole time they were waiting for who the caliph. They were waiting, they they thought of themselves as the soldiers in waiting for when the the right God's chosen warrior was in the White House again. That they did it through the Clinton era, and then they re they just reinvigorated themselves through Obama. I think that it, it actually does fit in you know, to this, because uh, they, they, they know they can't do it themselves. They're, they're waiting. They're, they're soldiers in waiting.
1: Well, yeah, and I, uh, I mean, technically, you, you would think, given, I mean, one of the funny things about America versus Canada is um, Canada devolves almost all constitutional authority to the federal government. Our provinces have almost no real power. In the United States, the Constitution devolves almost all authority to the state, and um, uh, the feds are supposed to have no real power. The actual operation of these federations is the exact opposite, um, that um, uh, most all kinds of power flows to, uh, to the provinces that they have no business um, leading on constitutionally, and um, uh, in the United States... I do find that a very interesting cultural feature that on the one hand, um, evangelicals will light their hair on fire about federal encroachment on state authority. But on the other hand, I think exactly what you're describing, it's like they could enact these policies at the state level, but they keep waiting for national leadership or they would rather um, see enacting a policy at a state level not as an end in itself, but as a means to enact that policy federally. And um,
2: I I find that spirit
1: very, um, I mean, I find that spirit very curious, especially, you know, when it's contrasted with um, these opposite constitutional orders. And, uh, you know, whereas, you know, Canada wouldn't view the sort of as a go you know, a enacting, nobody in Quebec feels the need to nationalize their childcare policy. Um, There is, uh, uh, and so I do find that a a curious feature of Americans of all stripes. I I find it's it's just an American cultural thing. This concurrent worship and suspicion of the federal government. Um, And so... Yeah, I think that culturally those reforms are absolutely justified in that way. But the problem is that it, uh, in terms of the institutional power of the Caliph, um, it pulls power downwards into the states, just having those things there, even if their stated purpose is to nationalize the policy at a later point. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's possible But I think what we need to see is um, um, really we haven't seen since Rove leadership around that. I think one of the reasons this could gel under George W. Bush is because Rove offered a coordination function around those state initiatives and wrapped them up in the agenda of the National Party. And I think... um, yeah, I think, I think depending upon um, things we do not yet know, um, we'll see how far that, we'll see whether what's more powerful is the rhetoric or the institution. Because institutionally, it should be pulling power away from the center. Rhetorically, it's saying it's giving power to the center. And I'm not sure which thing is more descriptive yet, but I think you're right. I think that it's entirely... Um, that uh that it could be that the u.s is going this more iranian route in the long term
2: well quebec uh, already has its child care as national policy it's just in the nation of quebec
1: <laughs> oh sure but it is interesting right that um provincial governments will engage in go it aloneism, and um and uh there is a distinct lack of interest in imposing whatever that thing is at the national level, as long as the province is compensated.
2: Well, maybe if you divided the United States up into 10 giant states, uh, you may see the same type of thing. Well, I think and we do and see... Oh, really good point for Ethan about uh, about healthcare policy in uh, Saskatchewan.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. But it's interesting... But... That was not Saskatchewan's policy that was nationalized. Saskatchewan tried to create an NHS style thing. It was destroyed by a doctor's strike. And so Canadian Medicare is, is totally the liberal party of Canada's. The dream of national health care, Absolutely not. That was the NDP's dream. Keeping all the hospitals and doctors from being nationalized was the brilliance of the compromise-seeking natural governing party. Um, So it was interesting. They could only nationalize healthcare by repudiating the Saskatchewan model. But uh, what I was going to say is, um, actually, if we think back to what I was, when we were talking about, um, when I was talking about Glenn Beck's book, um, right, that Rick Perry could amplify, could amplify Skousen's, Five thousand year leap because of the uh, textbook uh, because of the textbook purchasing authority of the um, Texas government, right? So in the United States, you see a very different you did, the equivalent of Ontario and Quebec. this being you know the the two large states within the federation that punch way above their weight. They do manifest national power, but in um, in such a different way that state education systems the funds come from the feds but the curriculum comes from either texas or california um so yeah operationally bizarre and both texas and california of course have dreams of the nationalization of their respective policy but it's not going to happen
2: i really like this point from jonathan here about the worship of presidents uh rather than the worship of a, a government. And I remember as a child finding it really bizarre in watching American movies where if anybody in an American movie gets a telephone call from the president, they stand up when they answer the phone and say, oh yes, Mr. President. And as a Canadian, I'm like, who stands up just because what's going on? Why would you stand up? What's so important about this guy?
4: Yeah, the, the, the movie in which America begins to be conscious of this is Unforgiven where the Duke of Death shows up and he's this British guy and he says well there's a certain divinity that hedges in a king but why not shoot a president? <laughs> gets I love that. get kicked, kicked out of him and run out of town on a rail.
2: On the 4th of a July. Gunslinger,
4: but he's un-American.
1: <laughs> yeah, I Look think. I mean, yeah let's, yeah, let's be clear there. There is a pre existing mystical quality to the office of president, just as there was to the office of emperor prior to Constantine, just as there was to Frankish kingship before Charlemagne. That this, um, and I actually think it, you could also look to Lord of the Rings for some good rhetoric around that, right? the defense of the line of stewards, not assuming the kingship is actually it's, it is uh, you could easily port it into American discourse about the office of president. Like we have shown our incredible restraint by not having a king. And every president we have who doesn't become a king has therefore embodied a kind of virtue that carries that decision across the generations. So it's like every time America, every time America elects a president, it's America holding itself back and deciding not to have a king yet again. And the guy who isn't the king, even though he obviously should be, is demonstrating all this discipline and forbearance. And it's a sign that he is more worthy to be king than any actual king. And that mythology, of course, goes back to the beginning. That's part of um, the stuff they have to do to achieve the original liberal consolidation of power after the revolution. Because of course, like any revolution, everybody just goes into the town square and lights things on fire. And then suddenly they have to figure out who's in charge when the bad guys leave. And um, the liberals were by no means the majority in that revolution. They just like, uh, just like Lenin, hijacked a revolution that was going somewhere in support of an ideology most of the population didn't support and that revolutionary hijacking um is really evident in the pre-existing mystical character of the presidency so i was actually going to say that um for um so i a big fan of Probably the the greatest living Mormon historian. He was still alive. He put something on my Facebook page a couple of months ago. I was very glad to see. But Richard Bushman um, writes a brilliant book about this that um, we were going to do the year we did Revolution and then scrapped it because we were behind schedule in the reading group. But it's called King and People in Provincial Massachusetts and. It uh, specifically talks about um, the liberal seizure of power, and in fact, how most revolutionaries believed—most revolutionaries believed—in this strange legal theory that the English people have a right to rise up and slay the king's counselors if they have counseled the king badly. Uh, but of course, that's not regicide. You would never slay a king, but you could rise up and slay the councillors. It was understood to be a common law right. And that was what got most of the revolutionary militias into the field during the original revolution, was this promise, uh, was this idea that uh, once they'd killed Jeffrey Amherst and forced the king to fire all these people and put Edmund Burke in his cabinet, Then, and that was the thing Bushman kept emphasizing is they believed they had special rights to revolt revolt as Englishmen. And it was their belief that they were Englishmen and not American Creoles and their belief that they had certain rights under the monarchical system that uh, put the soldiers in the field where they described themselves as loyal to the king, even as they fought the armies he sent or his parliament sent. So um, because there's anyway, so King and People, I highly recommend the, the book. It's a it's a short read. It, it doesn't have phenomenal style, but it, it's Bushman. And so it's uh, it carries you along. But yeah, I think that in order to become a holy empire, it's almost as though there must be an existing surplus in the office, whether that surplus is in the form of the revelations Muhammad received. Or whether it's from Charles Martel defeating the Muslims uh, at Poitiers, Jonathan.
4: Well, I think I think that's a, that's a really good point you make about about the Bushman thesis, and it sort of fits with with my with the curious thing that, that the world decided that the avant-garde of liberal revolution was the American perfection of a 16th century concept of monarchy in the form of the president, and not the British perfection of constitutional of, of a parliamentary democracy after actually killing the king and not apologizing <laughs> in, in the 17th century. So they're kind of, so America is, is like launching the future from from like a hundred years behind where England is actually, but um, which created all kinds of odd things. And you end up with a situation where the American definition of anarchist is, we support the state, when it shoots the government and not the other way around, <laughs> which is the European definition of the term. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of trying to sort of picture where, where Trump is going in this whole thing because he's the left. but what he's doing is he's not, I mean, first off, he's tried to become a king, which is one thing, but he's, he's stepping into this role, which returning to the Norman Cohn thesis is prepared for him. As, as not so much the Holy Emperor, but as the insane patriarchal cult leader who has all the children. You know, that, that I mean, there's this progression from starting with, with Muhammad um, and leading through Joseph Smith to Donald Trump, but it would taking in along the way, every, you know, the Cathars and all, the, and all these other people. And the, I mean, the cult leader that Trump most resembles and whose ideology he most follows is actually Lyndon LaRouche because QAnon is is LaRoucheism it's, it's the internal structure of that cult where everybody who's in it is is you know has their fragile heterosexuality depending on the fact that they're rising up against the homosexuals who are running the government and selling the drugs and yes water
1: well, the, the LaRoucheites, yes, I, I, I actually, um, there was a, uh, there were LaRoucheite entryists in the uh, Green Party in the early 90s. Um, one, um, and I, I've actually, I've thought of the LaRoucheites um, because of, you're right, the way QAnon, the way QAnon narrates, right, it's the aristocrats, that it's not really a narrative, it's word salad, and then the punchline that you knew before the joke started um i think that uh, and i i remember uh, elizabeth smith you know, yeah it's the mob you see the mob controls the drug port and because they control the drug port they control the social credit party the Social Credit Party is working with the Bronfmans, who are of course the American wing of the Rockefellers, who are the uh, Canadian Ring of the Rockefellers, the American Ring of Rothschilds, who have been running the world's shadow Jewish government since the 6th century BC. And um, so oh uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, no, the Larouchets—that—that that is a characteristic in in some ways, I, I repent one line of a blog post I made. It's like, no, the Laroucheites would actually watch Fox News, Fox News and believe it, whereas I don't think John Birchers would. But um, the and uh, uh,
4: the uh, that are, are, are against the bomb fence so that doesn't. Right?
1: Uh, but if we look at the courts of Holy Emperors, um, right? Your average. Your, your emblematic holy emperor in Christendom is also the crazy cult leader with lots of kids, right? Like, that's also true. Um, the, uh,
0: <coughs> right, a,
1: a proper holy emperor should have a bunch of legit kids, a bunch of illegitimate kids, um, that, um, that okay. there's that resemblance, right? Because, of course, the the court of the emperor and the court of the caliph are, they're copying each other all the time, right? They're, they're these oppositional structures that are constantly borrowing things from each other, like veils and harems and all sorts of stuff, you know? They, um, and so I think that um, it's true that there are what we might think of as people who have tried to do this there there's the failed cult leader and the failed cult leader is a figure is like a medieval counterfeit of a holy emperor right there they're a mockery of a holy emperor and when you look at polemics against uh hubbard or smith or whomever what is the ideal against which they're being compared and belittled and um i uh and it's rare right that um the problem is they don't have power to match their excesses, not that their excesses are inappropriate for power. You uh, other stuff. All right.
2: I just want to say that I've been playing a little bit of Minesweeper while I've been listening to this, and the mines form the shape of a cross, so all of these sinners <laughs> need to
3: Oh, I'm convinced. I, uh, you, it's a sign. You got me.
2: They come in all forms, man. Um, when you do the experiment, you can find out. I got a ton of stuff to say, but it's I don't know. It's so unstructured. There's just a lot.
1: Um, yeah,
2: great course.
1: <laughs> Thanks very much, folks. I'm gonna just bid you good night because it's basically seven o'clock. Um, good night. Uh, anyway, thank you all. Thank you all you've been uh it's been great doing this with you and uh really this week has been um it's been really nice to know that even if i'm bounced out of the university system i get to have more valued teaching experiences so so many many thanks i appreciate you all all right thank you and i dreamed i was dying
0: i dreamed that my soul unexpectedly Looking back down at me, smiled reassuringly, And I dreamed I was flying And high up above my eyes could clearly see the Statue of Liberty sailing away to sea And I dreamed I was flying we come on the ship they call the Mayflower We come on the ship that sails the moon We come in the ages most uncertain hours And sing an American tune Oh, and it's all Can't be forever less Still tomorrow's gonna be another working day I'm trying to get some rest That's all i have trying to get some rest